If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and this week, Mr. Taylor and I are recording an episode of this podcast on Tuesday, December 18th, 2019, which is just one week out from Christmas. And I don't know about you, Drew, but what I'd really like to find under the tree this year is a copy of Raman Zed's latest art book, which is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, The Art of the Movie. Uh, Nancy and I finally got to see that Sony Pictures animation film this past weekend, I have to say you were right, Drew, that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the best animated film released, well, so far, in 2018. <laughs> well, I'm just happy you liked it. I was worried that I was talking it up too much and that you would be disappointed, but I'm I'm very happy that you enjoyed it. Were you like me when you saw that? I mean, again, you, you think about how well-reviewed this movie has been. I mean, if you go over to Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a freshness rating of 97%, got an audience score of 95%. And yet, when it does $35 million and change over its opening weekend, weren't you kind of disappointed by that? I, I was disappointed, but also I know that it's a pre-holiday weekend, which is always tough. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think the better... It'll be interesting to see where it goes from here, right? Because we have so many huge movies opening up over Christmas, including Travis Knight's Bumblebee movie, which has also gotten really good advance word of mouth. I haven't seen it yet. Mary Poppins Returns, which we both loved. You know, there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of big movies coming out, like more so than I can even remember in recent memory. Maybe just because there was always a Star Wars movie, so nothing else was coming out besides, you know, Jumanji. But I'm very curious to see what its staying power is, what it'll drop next weekend, or if it'll sort of maintain the status quo. I agree. I agree. I have to wonder, though, that just the weekend before last, we had, you know, that rarer than rare thing. We had the top two films, you know, at the box office were both animated films. Mm -hmm. We had uh, Wreck-It Ralph and Grinch. And Grinch, I, I guess I really shouldn't be surprised that Grinch is has shown that it has legs as we head into the holiday season. Whereas Ralph Breaks the Internet, I'm getting kind of concerned about that one. Are you? Yeah, it doesn't seem... I mean, you brought up the great point last time about the the change in ticket prices and everything, and and the Grinch has already outpaced it. I mean, it had a couple of extra weeks, but yeah, I don't know what's going to happen to that overall. Last night, Drew and I, we always do sort of a pre-game chat, but you were the one who brought up last night that... Nutcracker in the Four Realms. Disney has decided this weekend, which I find fascinating given that this is, what, Mary Poppins Returns opens in theaters tomorrow, the 19th, and I guess the Four Realms goes back into theaters or is pushed out into more screens on the 21st? Yeah, but they're not doing a lot of advertising for it because obviously they have another little movie opening this week that they're much more interested (laughs) in in, uh, promoting, but... Where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. But do you think that the Ralph Breaks the Internet is sort of like them trying to create a franchise where there really wasn't one? Or what do you sort of think about all that? I enjoyed it. I don't think it's quite as good as the first film. And in fact, I I have to admit, I approached this one 
kind of like I approached the Despicable Me sequels. I really enjoy the, the first Despicable Me, but it just seems with Despicable Me 2, Despicable Me 3, it's kind of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. Mm-hmm. And now with Minions being spread off. So it's like I didn't want it to necessarily diminish how I felt about the original Wreck-It Ralph. And more to the point, I really like Rich Moore. I really like Phil Johnson. I, I want these guys to succeed. And I guess that's the other thing is just when you, you look at when the original film came out in 2012, it's so weird to talk about that we're in an entirely different media market, but we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we live in this Netflix world where, frankly, when, you know, I think the last show we were discussing all the, you know, the amazing Netflix projects, the, the animated features that are coming, and how even Disney is stepping into the space with Disney+. Plus. And so the release window really has gotten shorter and, and that much more brutal. Right now, Ralph Breaks the Internet 2 is 26 days into its domestic release. And and back in 2012, the original Wreck-It Ralph hung in theaters for an additional 93 days. And if the pattern held, that means that Ralph Breaks the Internet would still be out in theaters on March 21st of next year. And that ain't happening. No, the DVD will probably be out by then. I would imagine. No, that's it exactly. And if you think about what a Ralph would be facing if it actually hung into theaters that long. I mean, in February, we have the one-two punch of the Lego Movie 2. Two weeks after that bows on the, the February 8th, we've got How to Train Your Dragon Hidden World. Mm-hmm. And given how strong Grinch has proven to be, I think Mary Poppins Returns is going to suck a lot of oxygen you know out of the box office for any other disney projects so it's going to be interesting to see whether or not ralph is doing anything but matinee business as of late december early january and then it just kind of will go away and like you said you know we'll be blu-raying and dvding and digital downloading what late february yeah i mean i they already sent me a blu-ray of venom that just that came out in october (laughs) And it's already out on Blu-ray. So the, the window, you you and I remember when you had to wait a year. I mean, how long did we wait until E.T. was on cassette? That oh, felt like geez. years. I mean, at least to me yeah. as a child, it might have been less. But yeah, there was a full year in between Disney movies coming out on in the- theaters and on, on tape. And so it's just crazy. Now, speaking of timing, if we can double back to the Lego movie to the second part right now. Mm-hmm. When the first Lego movie came out in 2014, same thing, came out in February, uh, there were a lot of people in the industry who were genuinely surprised at how well that Phil Lord and Chris Miller movie did. I mean, it, it had a relatively minuscule budget in the animation world, what, $60 million and made a quarter of a billion dollars, or more than a quarter billion dollars stateside, and did over $200 million overseas, and I want to say worldwide total of $469 million. And Warner Animation Studio, which has been wanting to be a serious player in animation since Quest for Camelot. <laughs> right. But when was the last time they actually made their own animated movie? Even Smallfoot was uh, Sony animated Smallfoot, which also makes you just amazed that they could get so many movies done and Spider-Man in the same window because you would think that Spider-Man would just take every single resource they have ever had to, to pull off. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I just, again, I know you and I talked 
out ahead of the film about the art direction and how how ambitious it was and when you see the battle in the multiverse space the end of the film it's like i thought all of the stuff of miles running around new york was ambitious that stuff in the battle at the end of this thing is just crazy i mean i just remember talking with my daughter alice who who longs to to work as a storyboard artist and it's like how the hell would you have boarded that scene so from the warner's side of the fence they thought "Ooh, we have a franchise now but normally you think, okay, so you have a franchise, so you would go into doing Lego Movie 2. But that's not what they did. It makes sense given that the Will Arnett's take on Batman was, was honestly one of the very best things in the original Lego movie. So sure, let's, let's build a movie around that. In fact, let's put it out pretty much the same weekend, the early February of 2017. And you as, as a local can talk about... They went all out on the lot promoting this thing, didn't they? Or- oh yeah, it was crazy. They had um, they had banners everywhere. The water tower, the famous water Warner Brothers water water tower, was painted yellow and had Batman coming out of it. I mean, it was crazy how big into this movie they were, and then it just didn't quite do what they wanted it to. Yeah, opening weekend of fifty three million, which was. 16 less than the original Lego had made. When it ended its stateside run, it had only earned $175 million, which was $82 million less, again, than the original Lego had made stateside. And then when you factor in that it cost $20 million more to make than the original Lego... Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. But as bad as that was, that wasn't nearly as bad as what happened with the, the Lego Ninjago movie, which came out in September of last year. And... That one, $70 million budget, and opening weekend of just $20 million, which was $46 million less than the original Lego had made on its opening weekend, and it just brutal, brutal numbers. Stateside, when it finished its run, it was only $59 million, which was $200 million less than the original uh, Lego movie had made. It's kind of interesting now that here we are looking at Lego Movie 2, the second part. So pressure's really on right now for, for this, which which comes out on February 8th of next year. Especially when you take into consideration that Merlin Entertainment is putting tens of millions of dollars into the construction of Lego Movie World, which is due to open at the Legoland Florida Resort in, in early spring of next year. You've been out there, haven't you? I haven't been there, but for the Lego Ninjago movie, they had the junket at the Legoland at, in Carlsbad. Mm-hmm. So I, I drove out there for that, which was uh, it was an experience. I, I did not expect it to be quite so kid-oriented, but I, I'm glad. I'm very glad I went, for sure. Have you heard about what what they're doing as part of the Lego movie world? That Legoland Florida is going to have their own version, basically, of Soren. No. <laughs> you, as a Disney fan, will love this, Drew. I mean, the gimmick is you are on the Lego Movie Masters of Flight attraction where you actually get to ride in Emmett's triple-decker flying couch. That sounds great. Uh, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing you and I talked about uh, off air was that uh, just this past week we saw the Playmobil, uh, the, tra- the first trailer for the Playmobil, the movie. Just yeah, that. you know, initially you and I didn't know quite what to make of this one. I mean, there's there's some generally funny little moments in it, but it's just sort of like, okay, where's this one gonna go? But I 
I did my due diligence on this one. Did you know who's directing this one? Uh, no, I have no idea. Lino DeSalvo. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know him from Walt Disney Animation Studios. He's been there, or had been there, for 16 years. This is, uh, he was supervising animator on Bolt and Tangled. Uh, he was the guy who was largely responsible for Flynn Rider and then went on to be the head of animation on Frozen. And you worked in the building, Drew. Can you please explain yes. to me the difference? We have a head of animation, we have an animation supervisor, and a supervising animator. Yeah, I have no idea. Really? I mean, I think super a supervising animator, I think, is specific for characters, right? Mm. So, like, Glenn Keane was this, probably the supervising animator for Beast and, and that kind of thing. But head of animation and animation supervisor are pretty interchangeable, it sounds like, but I have no idea what the difference is. Okay. Really, I don't know. I'll look into it. <laughs> All right. Uh, more to the point, I'm sure that at least one of our listeners actually does yes. this for their job. So could you explain to the morons what the difference between these three jobs are? Because yeah. I, I would really appreciate being able to speak knowledgeably about this. But back to Lino again. He's a big favorite in this household because he was one of the supervisors, uh, not only a supervising animator in Prep and Landa, he was also the vo voice of Grizzletoad Jones, <laughs> who was one of the coal elves who gifted Wayne a fruitcake. So, you know, he's part of our holiday traditions here. By the way, next year is the, the 10th anniversary of Prep and Landing's release. Well, we just we just saw Prep and Landing at Hollywood Studios as part of the Jingle Bell, Jingle Bam, right? <laughs> yeah, and I need to hear your thoughts about this, because it's one thing... When you know you do the when holidays collide thing at the the haunted mansion holiday at Disneyland where you have Jack Skellington takes over the haunted mansion, but with the Jingle Bell Jingle Bam show, it's it's prep and landing runs straight into the Nightmare Before Christmas. And in fact, isn't Santa supposedly kidnapped as part of that show by yeah Boogie by Boogie? Boogie. <laughs> it was kind of interesting standing <laughs> yeah. in the crowd. When that show debuted last year, and sort of listening to little kids like, what? Yeah, it, it's pretty weird. You know, speaking of the parks, I wanted to ask you, do you think that Wreck-It Ralph's box office, which we were talking about just a minute ago, sinks the chances of actually having a Wreck-It Ralph attraction? I hate to say it, but given Bob Chapek's attitude toward the parks, we were just recently speaking with a friend in Imagineering, and... They are just sitting there waiting for the numbers for Mary Poppins Returns in regard to what they're going to do for the UK pavilion. Mary's been in the park since 65? The walk-around character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, the penguins have been there and all that. And so the notion is that you have, you know, Emily Blunt's take on the character in a very different wardrobe. And do we bring that version into the park? Do we use that as a leaping off point for a new Mary Poppins attraction? Because for the longest time, whenever anybody proposed doing a Poppins attraction, it usually keyed off of the Jolly Holiday sequence. And mm -hmm. that's Tony Baxter's famous portfolio piece that basically got him in the door, just pitching an attraction where he rode the carousel horse and jumped off the carousel and went through the, that show experience. So I think you and I both had, had been clued in very early on about the whole slaughter race take on what they were going to do with the racing game. Because when they initially talked about bringing the racing experience into Tomorrowland, into the old Mission to Mars alien encounter Stitch's Great Escape space, 
it was based off of the Sugar Rush game that had been, you know, come from the original Wreck-It Ralph ride or a film. And now this was more slaughter race with the hope that those folks who played the, um, ugh, I'm blanking the name of the, the racing game that slaughter race kind of. Oh, Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto. Because the, the thinking was that a lot of men were going to have trouble climbing into a racing game that, you know, you were racing against toddlers. You know, whereas <laughs> Slaughter Race, it's like, oh, Slaughter Race, yeah, I can, I, you know, my manhood is not threatened now. I will I will take part in this attraction. Bob Chapook coming out of consumer products, it's going to be all about how did it do with the box office, how did the merch sell, and is it a smart play to bring those characters into the park? And if Poppins is the behemoth that everyone seems to think it is, I honestly would not be surprised to see whatever money that had been set aside for the development for a Wreck-It Ralph thing to be, you know, slid in that direction. But, uh, oh, before I forget, though, the Lino, the, the gentleman who's directing the Playmobil movie, uh-huh. interesting follow-up project that he's he's following directing Playmobil the movie by producing a film that's going to be based on the Windsor McKay, Little Nemo in Slumberland comic strips, which... Oh, um, my God. Should he talk to Miyazaki about that? I, what I, happened? <laughs> now, there was the, the one that was done in the 90s. I want to say Mickey yeah. Rooney did voice work for it. And did the Sherman Brothers write songs for it? Or They did. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, the Sherman Brothers wrote the songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the one that, that didn't... Um, Miyazaki work on that or had it taken away from him or something uh, to that effect? I seem to recall. Yeah. In Uh. in the early 80s, uh, Hayao Miyazaki and Izayo Takahata were involved in the film, but were parted ways. Mm -hmm. And basically they kept Miyazaki's concept and made the movie. And apparently Brad Bird and Jerry Reese worked on the anime, the American version of it as well. Mm. Yeah. It's a tough property. I mean, when you look at the wonderful Windsor McKay drawings, it's it's the notion of how how do you live up to that? How do you make that that work as animation? So I guess be an interesting project to to keep an eye on. And speaking of, of being able to keep an eye on something, you brought up last night. Bow is turned up in an interesting place. Yeah, it's on YouTube right now for the next week. So watch it. But it's there for a really interesting reason, right? Now, it, it's made the shortlist for the 10 semifinalists that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences have selected for consideration for this year's possible Oscar winner for, for Best Animated Short. Yeah, that's right. I think that they're just doing it so that as many people, i.e. voting people, can see it as easily as possible. But it also played in front of Incredibles 2, which is the, one of the biggest animated movies of all time. And it's on the Blu-ray and DVD and digital versions. So, you know, I think that a lot of people have seen it, but this is definitely a great way to watch it one last time, especially if you're voting. Mm-hmm. When you think about how Disney has been releasing films over the past 50 years that is part of an, a, the Academy Award race, they're now in this space. I mean, they deliberately did this used to be what in order to be considered for an academy award you had to run for at least two weeks in a theater in both new york and la right Mm -hmm. yeah that's why you'll see these weird movies playing that you've never heard of (laughs) especially in la it's like what in the hell is this and you realize they've just bought out the theater so that they meet that kind of contractual obligation wow okay yeah well well, speaking of, of, of how movies gets released when when drew and i get back from our break 
We're going to talk a little bit about how Disney's attitude toward this stuff has changed over the past 50 or 60 years. So hang in there. We'll be right back. Let's start with the other big news. Oh, classic Disney film from February of 1950, Cinderella. Just joined a very select group of Disney films that are Library of Congress has placed on the National Film Registry. Took this one a while. As far back as 89, various Disney animated features have been nominated for the list. We had Snow White back in 89. 1990, we got Fantasia. 94, we got Pinocchio. And then, bit of a drought. It wasn't until 2011 that Bambi made the list. And then Mary Poppins in 2013. Then Roger Rabbit makes the list in 2016. And finally, Dumbo just last year. If you go back to the original, when Cinder, or Cinderella was originally released, it was February 15th, 1950, and the posters of the period were the most romantic film that Walt Disney Studios ever made, so what better time to put it out into theaters than the, the Valentine's Day weekend? Then from there, Cinderella was the film that saved the company. That If you remember prior to this, they were making things like make my music and fun and fancy free in fact you know the film that went out into theaters just behind cinderella was ichabod and, and mr toad and that literally was just two projects that disney had toyed with making features of and it's like ah screw it just we've done all this work for them let's get it out the door but once cinderella hit and hit big they took all of that money and they doubled down. They took two films that they've been trying to get made since the 30s and the 40s, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. At the same time, they took a lot of that money and Walt, when Roy was looking the other way, used it to, <laughs> to get started on Disneyland. When you jump ahead to June of 55, it always amazes me that they were able to get Lady and the Tramp out the door. It opens in theaters June 22nd of 1955, and that's 25 days before Disneyland opens. Wow. And here's their first animated feature in, not Cinemascope, but... Is it Cine Cinerama? I, well, no, Cinerama's the real... Maybe it is Cinemascope. But yeah, then from there, Walt sort of really gets face down in... Disneyland, and if you if you look at between when Cinderella was released and when Alice in Wonderland came out in theaters in '51, only 17 months had gone by, and then between Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, only 18 months, and then Lady and the Tramp because of the larger format, that sort of thing, that takes 27 months to get out the door, and then there's this almost three and a half year long pause before Sleeping Beauty hits, and they don't like to talk about the layoffs that happened right after Sleeping Beauty came out and sort of crashed and burned. Well, yeah, but there is, there's also this narrative that Cinderella didn't do as well as they wanted it to do because they didn't make another princess movie for almost a decade. But, what I mean, have you heard anything in regards to that? I mean, part of it was that it, Sleeping Beauty was supposed to be out so much earlier than it was. It, it was not supposed to be almost a decade later. Oh, no, no, right? no, no, no. Was... They, they started what? They started story work in 51. I want to say they began recording dialogue as soon as 53, but it took too long and there was that lag time. But right now, if you release a film in January, the belief within the industry is that you're burying that film. 
Right. It's a it's a dud. It's a, nobody's going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on, on the other hand, here's Sleeping Beauty released to theaters January 29th, 1951. Then two years later, almost to the day, we get 101 Dalmatians. And xerography had made it that much easier to, to turn around a picture that much quicker. So, you know, we're kind of back in that same... Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan period, where it's like, let's let's get a picture out quick. And then less than 23 months later, we get Sword in the Stone. Unfortunately, Sword in the Stone kind of got hobbled by the fact that here was a film that sort of celebrated the Camelot myth, which was very popular during this period due to President Kennedy, who was a huge fan of the T.H. White books and likewise the, the Broadway musical Camelot. And Less than a month earlier, on November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy's assassinated. And that had been initially part of the promotion of the film, that a funny take on Camelot. And that was during a period of time where the nation was in deep, deep mourning. In fact, it wasn't until the Beatles arrived in the United States and appeared on Ed Sullivan in 64 that people finally felt like, okay, it's okay to be entertained again. So, Oh, really? Yeah, anything that came out during this period. Uh, Disney didn't really hold to a pattern after this about when it was releasing films. I mean, you get, you know, for example, why they opened Sword in the Stone December 25th, 1963, because, again, it's the holiday period. It's, you know, families are home together, and hopefully they go out to the movies as a family after that. Then going forward, if you look at how Disney releases films going into the 70s, they did almost the exact same thing with The Aristocrats. That opened uh, December 24th, 1970. Robin Hood, same thing. You know, that goes out in November, uh, first week or so of November. So you you begin to see sort of the, the beginnings of the pattern that we see today that Disney tries to put out films sort of in that Thanksgiving window. Mm-hmm. But if you continue to sort of bump around or, or kick at this stuff, what you see is in the mid-70s, based on what the Spielbergs of the world are doing, suddenly Disney is releasing, like the Rescuers, in early June. Because this is where the previous summer, Star Wars had done all of that business. And then a little movie came out in 1994 that pretty much set the precedent for all the animated movies for the next little while, which was Lion King, was like the biggest summer movie ever. Look at the years previous to that. If you look at Mermaid, Beast, uh, Aladdin, they all came out on the Thanksgiving weekend with the notion of, let's put them out as holiday pictures. And you're right. In June of 94, Lion King comes out, makes the largest amount of money that, that any animated film had made to date. And immediately, Disney shifts all of its animated films to that summer window. So we get Pocahontas in June. We get Hunchback in June. We get Hercules. And you can actually watch the box office on those films like a set of stairs. They just continue to go down. And Disney coincidentally surrenders its Thanksgiving spot to Pixar the very next year, November of 1995. That's when Toy Story comes out. Right. Pixar loved that spot for a long time. Monsters, Inc. went out during that period. The original Toy Story 2. Incredibles. Yeah. But then came Nemo. And how long was Nemo the highest grossing 
animated film that Pixar released, and it was like, whoa, now we want that spot. Yeah, I mean, I think the other reason, too, is that they knew that they could get a double hit by having the home video release come out before Christmas. That is worth noting, because in the 50s, 60s, almost into the 1980s, they still held to that whole film goes back into the vault for seven years and then comes out with the notion that, you know, every seven years is a brand new generation of kids. Now we don't live in that world anymore. Yeah. And if you look at the next four Disney movies, only one of which we know the name of, but they're all November 22nd, 2019 is Frozen 2. November 25th, 2020 is... A movie, same for November 24th, 2021, and November 23rd, 2022. So one of those movies is the Don Hall movie, and the other movie, one of those movies is probably the Dean Wellens movie, but they're all in the Thanksgiving corridor. Before we close here, though, I think we probably should talk about the other big announcement of the past week or so, and that's got to be Onward. Yes, that's right. That's June 2020, isn't it? So yes. once again, here's Pixar claiming that date. It's really not a coincidence that Toy Story 4 is coming out in that same window because it's like when you're in that wonderful summer window where the kids are out of school and everyone go, you, you make buku bucks. But what is your take on the voice cast of this thing? Well, it's really interesting because we, we were just talking about Lego movie and Chris Pratt is the lead of the Lego movies. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now he's also the lead in Onward, which mm-hmm. is just really interesting. And the same with Julia Louis-Dreyfus being such an iconic character in A Bug's Life. And now mm-hmm. she's uh, a character in Onward. It, it's just really interesting. And then again, Tom Holland is in Spies in Disguise and is a voice in Onward. It used to be that like the Pixar movies were sort of not swayed by who's hot. Mm-hmm. Right now. I mean, Craig T. Nelson is the star of Incredibles, for God's sakes. And, and yep. you know, even even when the first movie came out, he hadn't had a hit in a long time. So mm-hmm. onward. What did they call it at the D23 Expo back in 2017? The, what the Pixar film that we have yet to figure out what we're calling it or. Right. So this was a project that Lasseter basically greenlit. But I can't help but think that this is kind of a passing of the torch. We've got Toy Story 4 with the big name cast that they got for that to sort of put it on the map, you know, back in 95. You know, Tom Hanks, Oscar wing actor, and Tim Allen, who at that point was in the number one television show on on ABC. And, and now the very thing you just pointed out, Chris Pratt, who sort of king franchise between uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and the Jurassic World films, and likewise Tom Holland, who's basically in next summer's can't miss Spider-Man Far From Home. And of course, you know, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, who's finishing up her run on Veep. This is going to be, I think in a lot of ways, the first film of the new Pixar and so it, right. in much the same way that Brad Bird getting the call and, you know, about Ratatouille, that come back here, you know, you have to work on this film and this has to be a hit because we, this may be our first post-Disney film. And I can't help but think when you look at that vocal cast that, you know, a decision was made that this has to be high profile. This has to be that much bigger, uh, especially coming on the heels of Toy Story 4. So I was already intrigued by this film, by the whole suburbs meet the fantasy realm idea and again do you remember the story that that sort of set this whole thing in motion about who's the the gentleman who's directing it again uh dan scanlon dan scanlon told that that amazing story about how i guess his father 
died before Dan never really got to know his dad. And yeah, and then they found a like uh, audio recording of him just saying like "hello" or yeah, something. It was yeah. from like a old home movie, mm-hmm. and he said that that was the inspiration for the whole. It was very touching. I thought. I agree. Um, I agree. I, I'm so looking forward to this movie between the the idea that set it in motion and the world they're trying to explore here but and it's an original pixar movie yay it's not a sequel there we go so that also i think is another thing that sort of it's not a coincidence that this is this is why this film was chosen to follow toy story 4 but i guess we'll we'll know more in june june of 2020 i think we will have a trailer now speaking of which when do you think We'll see a trailer for this thing. I think Toy Story 4 will have the first teaser. Um, okay. Yeah. I think it'll be set up sort of as like a, a traditional fantasy movie, and then you'll see like a car come through. I mean, you remember the pre-production artwork we saw, right, where there was like a magical tree in the middle of like a Walmart parking lot and stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, it was really cool. No, I agree. I, I forget it. Wasn't it like trolls in the appliance section, they were being shown washers and dryers. I mean, it's a it's, yes, yes. It's a it's a world where people forgot how to do magic or left magic behind or something like that. But right. again, very very intriguing. Premise. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. So, well, all right. Speaking of, of leaving things behind, I, I don't want people to miss out on what you're doing with the Mission Impossible films. And uh, uh, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> have you been listening still, Jim, or was it just yeah, for that road yeah. trip? And, okay. Talk about your recent guest. I mean, or you know, oh well, well I went to I went to the BMW training facility outside of Palm Springs and actually got to drive around with one of the stunt drivers um, in the movie, which was really crazy, and we got some great interviews with from that. And I'm so excited to announce that I don't think we've said this online yet that we have Christopher McQuarrie, the writer and director of Rogue Nation and Fallout. He came. Onto our show, amazingly, I don't know how we got him, I don't know, but uh, now we're buds, and he is going to be on the show. We have a two-part episode that's going to close out the year that is really cool, and I think you're going to love it. The podcast is called Light the Fuse. Please subscribe. It's awesome. Very cool. Okay, cannot wait to hear that. And and on this side of the fence, it's the Disney Dish podcast that I do with Len Testa. We've got the Looking at Lucasfilm that I do with Dan Zahair, Marvel Us Disney with the amazing Aaron Adams, and of course the Universal Joint podcast that I do with Dustin Fuse. And who could forget the show you were just listening to, the the fine-tuning with Drew Taylor. And we will be back shortly with our year in review show. Is that the plan? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. Till then, folks, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon, okay? Take care. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. <laughs>